Alrighty, everyone. Welcome back. We've got another episode of the Basin Breakdown for you. It's myself, Tavis, joined with Kevin here. How you doing? And uh, we're glad to have you back, and we're a little sorry that we got this out late. I shouldn't say we, I should say me. I got kind of sick. Things fell backwards, but here we are. We've got the episode for the month of October for you. I think, what, should we just launch right into it? <laughs> We've kept them waiting long enough. So we'll start off, as always, here in the DJ Niobrera Basins of Colorado. And after nine months of work, Governor Jared Polis's administration released the Colorado Greenhouse Gas Pollution Reduction Roadmap. Whoa, that is a mouthful. Even so, early October was full of criticism from people who felt the plan failed to address many important benchmarks, and more specifically, a timeline associated with the goals. Quote, the roadmap is missing the most essential element for progress, concrete regulatory policies to be proposed swiftly that taken together are fully capable of guaranteeing climate pollution goes down, said Pam Keeley, Senior Director for Regulatory Strategy at the Environmental Defense Fund. House Bill 1261 passed last year with the goal to cut greenhouse gases. Seems pretty normal. What does this mean for Colorado? A 26% reduction in 2005 emission levels by 2025, 50% by 2030, and 90% by 2050. So not as soon as a lot of the other 2030 goals that we may be seeing, but still a pretty aggressive scaling of green energy. So getting to the 2030 target will require across-the-board cuts, including an 80% reduction in the electricity sector emissions, a 50% cut in oil and gas, and a 50% cut in transportation, which is pretty dang huge for a 10-year time span. As it stands, transportation has become the largest source of greenhouse gas emission in Colorado, followed by emissions from power plants and the oil and gas industry. Regardless, people want to see more concrete goals with associated timelines, and the state's approach relies on the aggregate decisions of large numbers of people and markets doing things like buying cars, building or renovating homes, and changing practices farm by farm. Many people feel it would be easier and more cost-effective to go after large industries like power generation and oil and gas, but that's just simply not how this plan was set up. Well, got to agree with the people that are a little bit upset with these policies in the sense that you're right. I mean, it it has the outline, the skeleton, if you will, for, okay, by 2025, we want, you know, a 26% reduction. By 2030, a 50%. That all makes sense, but how are we going to get there? I think that's really been the issue and and is what's dragging all of these um, greenhouse gas policies. It's, you know, these are great goals, but how are we actually going to get there? Right. It makes sense. But if you put yourself in the shoes of a legislator, hey, look at me, Governor Polis, and I'm going to put forward this plan. And then he doesn't have to, by 2040, he's not in office. He's yeah. not doing anything. <laughs> so yeah, he's letting laid, someone else deal with yeah, it. Exactly. He laid the groundwork, but it's almost lip service at that point, but hey, let's get on to the next story. Alrighty. Well, the current director of the BLM, William Pendley, has been accused of unrightfully holding his position. The governor of Montana, Steve Bullocks, and the State Department of Natural Resources have sued Pendley, claiming that his position was not approved by the Senate. Therefore, he has no right to have made the decisions he's made since holding the director position. Regardless, Pendley is still at the wheel, whether or not he's simply acting director of the BLM. So what does this mean for Colorado? Well, a lawsuit from the Center of Biological Diversity and the Sierra Club, along with other environmental groups, seeks to reverse lease sales across 1.7 million acres of public lands in Colorado. The group has also identified at least 30 land management plans or other actions on federal lands that they will seek to overturn after the Penley decision. Can, can operators in Colorado catch a break? I mean, they're already struggling with new COGCC regulations, and now 
what their land might be taken back because apparently the BLM is inappropriately run. Yeah, well, I just it's like you're kicking someone while they're down. They just like you said, they can't catch a break. They have already paid for these leases. They're you know have been in line with all the the state regulations, and now well, apparently they can't operate because some guy had unrightfully held his position. It's just. That's too bad. I, I do feel bad for him, but that, that's what we've got for Colorado. Next up, we are taking you to Powder River, the Powder River Basin in Wyoming. So the Powder River Basin has been home to many natural resources like coal, oil, gas, but in steps a newer source of energy. Next Era Energy Resources is developing a 600 million, 400 megawatt wind farm that should see about 192 turbines erected by the end of 2020. The project has employed approximately 400 people during construction, which includes actually about 50 displaced oil and gas workers, and has maintained a team of about this size for several months now. Plenty of contractors that typically service the oil field are also able to support the construction thanks to the synergies between wind farm construction and hydrocarbon extraction. NextEra targeted the Converse County area because the infrastructure for transmission already exists for when the energy is generated. So far, the company has erected a little more than 132 of the planned 192 wind turbine towers, although they are still silent at the moment. The project has been wildly successful in the region because investors are looking to move their money away from coal, and this project seemed like a likely candidate. And I love the fact that there's displaced oil and gas workers on the teams erecting these. I mean... During this bust, that's something I love to see. Everyone yeah. working together. Well, I, and, and you just hit the nail right on the head, Tavis. It's nice to see people finally working together, you know, instead of being all oil and gas, all renewables. It's, you know, people are realizing there can be this middle ground. There can be this balance, and they're working together. I, I love this story. Next up, something maybe not as positive. So while Basin Breakdown is written a month after the fact, President-elect Joe Biden had not yet been confirmed the winner at the time the source of this article was written. Regardless, the article analyzed what would happen to Wyoming if Biden was elected. Nationwide, only 10% of oil and gas production, both conventional and unconventional, occurs on federal land. Doesn't seem like too big of a deal until you consider the fact that 51% of oil is drilled on federal land in Wyoming and a whopping 92% of natural gas. That is 38% of the natural gas produced on federal lands nationally. Although operators are saying that this doesn't make much sense, Senator Eli Babo is calling for Wyoming's Joint Appropriations Committee to diversify its tax base to buffer the decline in fossil fuels-associated revenues in the future. This may be a good idea since Wyoming is heavily dependent on federal money and typically generates most of its revenue from the state in oil and gas production. President of the Petroleum Association of Wyoming, Pete Obermuller, said, Quote, banning fracking and leasing in Wyoming does nothing to reduce U.S. emissions as production will simply shift to private lands in states like North Dakota and Texas. According to the former vice president, fracking is fine in Pennsylvania and Ohio because he needs their votes, but it's not okay in Wyoming. And, you know, he, he raises a good point. Even if you get rid of it in one place, it's likely to crop up somewhere else. But, I mean, just that staggering statistics you brought up there, 92% of natural gas production is on federal land in Wyoming. And if that gets banned or slowly repealed, I mean, not only think about the implications of the the taxes that they're going to lose, the revenues that they're going to lose, mm -hmm. but think about the jobs lost too. I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, great that NextEra is trying to help out some oil field workers, but they if, can only do so much. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just it, it'll be interesting to see really what happens, but um, we'll definitely keep you updated on this story. And now moving on over to the Permian Basin, we've got some mergers happening. 
So amidst these depressed prices, many mergers have cropped up in, well, the past few months. One of the larger is that of Pioneer Natural Resources, who bought out Parsley Energy in a $7.6 billion deal announced at the end of October. The deal is expected to generate $325 million in cost savings per year. This deal actually followed the ConocoPhillips acquisition of Concho Resources, who's also based in the Permian. This deal was slightly larger than the aforementioned Pioneer deal at $9.7 billion, and it's expected to save their company $500 million a year in cost savings. The consolidation of the Permian Basin's oil and gas companies could prove to bolster the struggling market, but it may take a few years to see the rewards of these moves. And then we're going to stretch into the New Mexico part of the Permian Basin real quick, because back in October, the U.S. Department of Energy published a report that claimed over the next two decades, 68% of energy consumption in the U.S. would come from natural gas. The claim was supported by the hypothesis that natural gas will play a key role in the energy transition to a low-carbon future, which is something we've even talked about here at Rare Petro. Make sure you go to rarepetro.com to read Kevin's periodicals on this subject. This report was released from the DOE office base in New Mexico, which is precisely where part of the Permian bleeds out of Texas. In New Mexico, tax revenue from the oil and gas industry contributes to 39% of the state's budget. This generates $16.6 billion in annual economic activity, employs more than 134,000 people, and funds $1.4 billion for the state's public schools. This means that the Biden-Harris plan to transition away from fossil fuels would be absolutely devastating for many families employed by the energy sector and many schools in the state of New Mexico. In fact, a recent analysis by the American Petroleum Institute projects that if oil and gas bans were implemented in Mexico in 2021, more than 62,000 jobs would be lost by 2022. Holy cow, Tavis, 1.4 billion. That's just absurd. Right, and I, I know even you said you, you don't like to be drawn just to that number and go, oh my God, that's so much money, but oh my God, that's so much money. <laughs> I mean, $1.4 just from state public schools in general? Yeah, I, it's, it's an absurd number that I, I really hope resonates with other individuals as much as it does with me because, I mean, it's for the kids. Right, so I hope that people can see the benefits of oil and gas outside of just powering and heating our homes and the society around us. And then a little bit of an update on the rigs. The Permian saw its largest week-on-week -week increase dating back to before the pandemic. The Permian Basin was the clear outlier in terms of the nation, basin-wide, jumping 10 rigs to 155 rigs total. This is the largest increase since the end of February of 2020 and put the number of rigs active in the basin at the highest since the weekending of June 3rd. So small wins, little wins. And moving on over to our favorite basin here, the Eagleford. San Antonio-based Lewis Energy Group is what we call the king of permits for the month of October as they plan to drill, drumroll please, nine new gas wells in the Eagleford Shale, which Woo! is a welcome sight for the comparatively less active basin. While other permits were submitted to the Railroad Commission of Texas, not one other company came close to beating Lewis. The company plans to produce natural gas from these wells, targeting a depth of 11,500 feet. The permits are surprising to see as the company has not seen any drilling activity for the past seven months. Pricing may have been the incentive, but that is unlikely since the month of October saw volatile prices as low as $38 per barrel. October was a decent month for the Eagleford rig count even before Lewis began drilling. An increase of three rigs up to 16 was observed by the end of the month. Although not nearly as active as Lewis Energy Group, U.S. Energy Development Corporation and Royal Production Company also filed for permits. Things in the Eagleford may be slow, but never fully abandoned. 
Man, I love to hear this because the Eagleford is such an underdog at this point. I know that's why we're always rooting for it. Right? When you stack it up to the Permian, not much goes on. But thank God somebody sees the value of this baby. But that about wraps up the coverage we have for Texas. So next we will move on to nearby Oklahoma looking at the Scoop Stack Basin. So recently you remember there was a Supreme Court decision that ruled actually half of Oklahoma as Native American land. And we're still a little bit confused as to what that means. So... A question whether Oklahoma can regulate oil and gas activities inside Indian country is snaking its way through the Oklahoma Corporation Commission's administrative judicial process. If you haven't heard, this stems from the landmark 5-4 Supreme Court ruling over the McGirt versus Oklahoma case, which was originally centered around the reservation's relationships to the U.S. Major Crimes Act. Now, it has opened the door to questions of whether or not the Native Americans have the right to regulate oil and gas activities on their land. The current argument claims that the McGirt case has set precedent that the reservation still exists for not just criminal, but civil and regulatory purposes as well. Because some wells exist in Indian country, the Oklahoma Corporation Commission lacks jurisdiction to rule anything. The counter-argument states the McGirt case established a criminal context, not a civil case involving property and a private operator that is based outside of Indian country. While no immediate decision is clear, it will certainly be a tumultuous terrain to navigate in the time to come. It's confusing all around. Nobody knows who's in ownership. Nobody knows who the royalties or mineral rights go to. It is a mess. It's it's kind of an interesting situation we got ourselves here because, I mean, really, if you think about it, the question boils down to whether or not the United States, or really just Oklahoma in general, has the right to tell Native Americans what they can and can't do on their lands in terms of oil and gas operations. Now we're going to jump into some environmental issues in Oklahoma. So many companies in Oklahoma, well, and in the United States in general, are turning towards solutions of reducing emissions and even incorporating renewables into their infrastructure. One of the reasons energy companies are evaluating a lower carbon future is that investors' tastes on the issues are changing. In October, Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock, warned company executives from upstream all the way to downstream that climate change, quote, has become a defining factor in companies' long-term prospects, end quote. Well, what exactly does this mean? A particular investment portfolio at any given capital venture investment agency is becoming less likely to build the companies that are not taking steps to become environmentally relevant into their portfolio. This means that fewer and fewer opportunities to invest in these companies will present themselves until they start looking for solutions of reducing their carbon footprint because, well, that's what investors want. While Chesapeake, Continental, and Devon are all Oklahoma-based companies trying to become more environmentally compliant, their solutions are usually similar. They incorporate better leak detection technology, upgrade equipment, and operational changes. In steps, Williams, a Tulsa-based midstream company who is taking BlackRock's words very seriously, well, which makes sense because BlackRock is their third largest investor, but today, Williams handles 30% of the natural gas consumed domestically. By 2050, however, they plan to be a net zero emitter. It will utilize the same strategies mentioned, but they also seek to develop renewable natural gas opportunities and more renewable sources for electricity, so they may reduce compression costs and provide more energy to consumers. They also provide a significant amount of money to Colorado State University's Methane Emissions Technology Evaluation Center, holy cow, that's a mouthful, and the Pipeline Research Council International. Williams also announced earlier this year that it would spend $400 million to build solar generating stations in nine different states to supply its transmission system with energy to run its compression and shipping operations. Lots of effort on the part of Williams, but it's not currently apparent if it will encourage more investors to give them their money. 
And it's wild to me that at this point, investors want it so badly that yeah, the companies who aren't making steps to become more environmentally relevant or compliant are getting left behind. I really think it's interesting that these portfolios are not containing these companies as well. I, it, it does make sense if you think about it because this is the trend that we're moving towards. I mean, there's no denying that people are definitely trying to be more aware of their carbon footprint and, and definitely reduce it. So I think this is, you know, just a, a bigger step that's happening in the background that I had no idea about. Now we're going to transition up the East Coast up to the Pennsylvania Marcellus Basin area. So like I mentioned, we write these a month after the fact. So at the time, Biden had not been confirmed presidential elect. But thanks to the gas-heavy Marcellus Basin, Pennsylvania proved to be a political battleground for both candidates leading up to the election. During the second presidential debate, Biden mentioned that he would work to transition away from the oil industry in the coming decades. This isn't a new position coming from Biden, as he does plan to end federal subsidies for fossil fuel companies, limit or outright ban the permits looking to operate on public or federal lands, and transitioning to renewables over three decades. Trump took this statement of, quote, transitioning way, and he ran. <laughs> Hydraulic fracturing supports anywhere between 20,000 to 50,000 jobs in the state, although low gas prices since 2018 have caused many companies to divest from the region. Even so, Trump took a day to blitz Pennsylvania with three rallies, claiming that hydraulic fracturing would be gone, leading to no jobs and no energy for Pennsylvanian families. Even though the state does operate in part of Marcellus, a slim majority of Pennsylvania voters opposed hydraulic fracturing in an August poll, and almost half supported an outright ban. With 20 electoral votes, Pennsylvania became an important swing state as Biden had been slowly edging a lead leading up to the election. Official polling results show that 50% of the state's votes went to Biden, with only 48.8% going to Trump, so a very close battle indeed. I feel like just, and I know that this is politics, but I feel like the <laughs> two, you know, both Biden and Trump just took, you know, the other's words and just, like you said, totally ran with it. That's what it was. Even if it was taken out of context, they just went there and said, oh, look at this guy, he's going to do this. And then you go, oh my God, he can't do that. <laughs> I mean, it works on both sides. It, it is surprising to see how many people in Pennsylvania We're are actually against it. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, I am very surprised by that. That really is the surprising part of this story to me. Especially if there's anywhere from 20,000 to 50,000 jobs supporting hydraulic fracturing or oil and gas in the state. I feel like you got to know at least one person in that state that works in oil and gas. But moving on. Pennsylvania will join six states committed to the development of safe carbon dioxide transport and storage. Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf said that the state will join Kansas, Louisiana, Maryland, Montana, Oklahoma, and Wyoming in signing a memorandum of understanding to establish a regional carbon transport infrastructure plan by 2021. This plan will allow captured carbon to be transported via pipeline or pressurized vessels to sites where it can be stored safely. This process stands to make use of existing technology and practices that involve injecting carbon dioxide inside various rock formations, underground saline water formations, and oil and natural gas reservoirs that can't be utilized for any number of reasons. Pennsylvania's Department of Conservation and Natural Resources claims to have been considering this carbon capture and storage technology for two decades. So, Many are pleased that Pennsylvania will develop an action plan and policy recommendations related to carbon transport by October of 2021. The group will also identify barriers to the practice and develop strategies to remove them. The state coordination group will be facilitated by the Great Plains Institute and informed by ongoing work by the State Carbon Capture Work Group and the Regional Carbon Capture Deployment Initiative. And this is awesome. Not only are we 
putting carbon back into the ground. We're coming up with transportation networks and strategies to move it to locations where it can be utilized in that way. I mean, to me, it's it's what better way to reduce your carbon footprint than taking carbon dioxide, you know, something that's very abundant, and storing it instead of letting it go into the atmosphere. So to me, I just, I think this is an awesome technology, awesome use of in collaboration. I'm really excited to see where this is going to go. But keeping things gassy, we're going to move from the Marcellus to the Bakken, where slowly but surely things are getting better. Although the numbers are slow to report, North Dakota's oil output soared 14% in August and showed signs of climbing slightly more in the near term. North Dakota Mineral Resources Department Director Lynn Helms celebrated the improvement, but noted that the increased production is primarily from existing wells. Although November showed 1.52 million barrels per day in 2019, the numbers will likely be at least 300,000 shy for November of 2020. While domestic demand is slowly returning in the form of gasoline, jet fuel demand is still terrible, and the prices just aren't high enough for new developments or frack jobs. Helms predicts that WTI prices of $45 would entice operators to start hydraulic fracturing once again and bolster the production through the end of the year. It is uncertain if the prices will climb and hold at that level, but $17 million of the $60 million allocated for the CARES Act may still have the opportunity to find their way into operators' pockets. The CARES Act provides federal money for COVID relief, but bad weather and legal delays prevented much of that money from being spent in the case of North Dakota. The CARES Act requires that about $17 million is used by December's end, and Helms wants to provide grants for companies to fracture and complete new wells before that time. Still, this is just another short-term solution, as fracturing completed wells only boosts the state's production for about a year, and Helms says the price must reach $55 a barrel for companies to drill new wells at a profit. Either way, production is increasing, and companies are more than compliant with the 91% gas capture target that went into effect in early November, so October can be chalked up as a small victory for the Bakken Gas Basin. I'm glad they're using the money like this, because if, if it's going to go unused... You know, yeah, it's, and, and I'm pretty sure and we were looking into it. It's, it's a use-it-or-lose-it situation, so might as well use that $17 million. I mean, that's... For me, in a state that's so heavily focused on the oil and gas industry, I think that's a perfect use of their funds. Yeah, even if only five million goes to that and the other twelve goes to small businesses, whatever, good on them for finding a way to make it work. Absolutely. Although depressed oil prices have laid off thousands of workers, North Dakota continues to find opportunities for temporary work. About two hundred and eighty wells in the Bakken Basin are in the process of being plugged and have their surrounding land reclaimed. This has employed about a thousand oil and gas workers who lost their jobs earlier during the pandemic. Unfortunately, this work seems to be seasonal as winter quickly approaches and threatens to halt the process of plugging with its freeze. Department of Mineral Resources Director Lynn Helms has thankfully prepared a solution for this problem already. He was involved in the proposal to lawmakers that hopes to target the completion of about 150 drilled and uncompleted wells, or duck wells as we've referred to them. The plan would be to use money from the CARES Act that was allocated for COVID relief. Grants will be provided to operators to complete these wells, employ between 500 and 1,000 people in the process, and create between 200 to 300 jobs through the winter. This plan is built on the assumption, or perhaps just hope at this point, that WTEI will be back in the $45 range by next spring, allowing the completion of these wells to be economic, even without these grants. 
A few more wells are still being considered for plugging and reclamation, but these projects will only stop when money from the CARES Act and North Dakota legislature runs out. Good on North Dakota for not only finding one, but a multitude of options, avenues to get people back to work and use this loan money. But in California, the local government seems to be faring just not as well. What can you tell me about that, Kevin? Well, California Governor Gavin Newsom put himself into the spotlight in September for his controversial promise to phase out gas-powered vehicles and calling an end to hydraulic fracturing in California. Now, lawmakers are growing increasingly skeptical of the claim. Most seem to be in support of the policy changes, but they feel it's mostly lip service at this point. As Assemblywoman Christina Garcia put it, quote, If this is going to be successful, we're going to need not just a governor's endorsement, but he needs to put muscle behind this to help get the votes together. I've seen bills that do way less related to oil die in the legislature, end quote. Even more are starting to question Newsom's intent as the announcement seems too well-timed to move to draw headlines or potentially kick off a political dogfight in Sacramento against oil interests and their trade union allies. This is a battle legislatures and environmentalists in California have lost before, and to win next year, it requires Newsom to take a strong effort to push the proposal through. Unfortunately, he is becoming known as a man of words and not action. The biggest hurdle in the fracking ban is the bipartisanship relationship between the liberals in coastal and urban areas who are in great support of reversing climate change and the more inland moderates who say that thousands of working class jobs will be lost. As it stands, steam injection seems to be safe for the short term as everyone has their sights locked on hydraulic fracturing, but Newsom temporarily halted that practice about this time last year. 2021 will likely be a controversial year for oil and gas in California, and time will tell what lasting effects will come of it. I gotta say, I don't envy Newsom's position, but I think it's definitely going to make things interesting moving forward, as like we said, we've got two very different groups, the people working it, and then the people in the Bay Area who want nothing to do with it. Yeah, and I, I do think it's nice that people are finally starting to realize that Newsom's more of a man of words and not really of action, but <laughs> who knows? You know, we're... We're hoping that, you know, things move forward and we'll keep we you We wish them the best. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then uh, lastly, real quick, little update on the fires. California has been struggling with wildfires for months now, as you know. But Pacific Gas and Electric told its customers to brace themselves as the worst is yet to come. Historically, California's biggest fires crop up in October, and the end of the month exhibited the driest humidity levels and the strongest winds of the wildfire season thus far. The National Weather Service issued warnings for many areas, predicting 35-mile-per-hour winds in San Francisco and up to 70-mile-per-hour winds at higher elevations leading into the mountains. This makes the likelihood of a spark or ember being carried to drier brush and forest land much higher. Unfortunately, this means PG&E has to shut off power for over 1 million customers for a three-day period. PG&E isn't taking any chances as a 2018 blaze ignited by damaged PG&E equipment destroyed a significant part of the town of Paradise and killed 85 people. This is the fifth public safety power shutoff of 2020, and eight of the ten deadliest wildfires in California history occurred in October or November. So hopefully California catches a break sooner or later, but man, I, I can't say I blame PG&E for cutting the power. Yeah, I, I know that that was probably a very difficult decision for them because they're going to piss off a lot of customers, but like you said... Their equipment caused that blaze back in 2018 that killed a lot of people. So I think if people were to be asked, you know, would you rather, you know, your neighbor's house <laughs> burning down or you can't, you know, watch TV 
for Sunday night football or something like that. I think most people would choose not having their power on. I would too, but it's got to be frustrating at this point because it's happened for months and a lot of it's falling on, well, the blame falls on oil and gas. So let's see how they navigate this moving forward. I know where I stand, but I'm going to do my best to present facts instead of opinions. But I think that wraps up this month's episode of Basin Breakdown. Have you got anything else to say, Kevin? Thanks for tuning in, guys. Yeah, I can't really think of any other stories that we may have missed, but if we did, be sure to go to rarepetro.com because we're always making Monday Madness episodes, writing periodicals, recording other podcasts, interviewing professionals. Many, many ways for you to learn and grow with us. So it's a modern mobile oil field. Join us in consuming some modern and mobile content on rarepetro.com or whatever podcast platform you listen to. So thanks again for joining us. And until we see you next time, take care, everybody. 